The Navy's oceanography activities go wide and deep. They also include tracking and, if necessary, neutralizing things in the ocean that didn't get there naturally, like explosive mines, for example. That's where the Naval Oceanography Mine Warfare Center comes in. In our final interview of this week's series on naval oceanography, we turn to the Mine Warfare Center's commanding officer, Commander Matthew Watts. Commander Watts, good to have you with us. It's great to be here, Tom. Thank you very much. And tell us exactly, at the beginning here, what the Oceanography Mine Warfare Center actually does, and where do you do it oh, from? Sure thing. So my command primarily supports the Navy's Mine Warfare Mission Area. Specifically, we provide embedded tactical oceanography support for mine countermeasure forces globally. We do that down in Stennis Space Center in Mississippi, and we deploy small teams throughout the world, leaving from Stennis Space Center, to carry out UUV ocean bottom surveys, and the post-mission analysis that goes along with collecting side-scan sonar data. We use the Mark 18 Mod 1 program of record system for the Navy, which is just a fancy word to say, a small man-portable UUV. So two personnel can pick up the UUV and toss it in the water and do some uh, ocean surveys. Uh, Number two, we also provide environmental data analysis, as well as mine contact fusion and change detection for mine warfare operational commanders. And this includes air, surface, and Unmanned Mine Countermeasure Forces, or MCN forces. Well, let me ask you this, a question about mines, because people sow waters with them. And in the case of landmines, they stay there forever. And there's a whole unit of the federal government centered on the State Department, whose mission it is to try to help countries relieve themselves of landmines. Uh, That's going to be a big issue in Ukraine eventually. In the ocean, are mines something that are dropped in and they're there forever until someone takes care of them? Uh, Yeah, that is one method of deploying naval mines is basically just dumping them in the ocean. And whether they're a moored mine, which means they have a anchor at the bottom and they extend into the water column as mines. We've used those for many, many years. There's also moored mines or mines that are actually on the ocean bottom. And they are triggered when a ship or something of interest crosses the path of that mine and explodes. And then there's also floating mines, which are basically one of the worst case scenarios, similar to the landmines, right? Something that's just there. And if it's a floating mine, it's able to drift with the ocean currents and quite a bit of havoc. Not that the others don't cause havoc, but just it's a floating mine, a lot less control by the blue force or the red force that employ those mines. And is the center that you command concerned with helping the Navy mine waters, or is it also concerned with helping the Navy remove mines or detect mines and help mitigate them that have been laid by others, or all of the above? The Naval Oceanography Mine Warfare Center primarily focuses on the defensive aspect of mine countermeasures. So if there's a minefield laid, we want to clear that minefield or look for alternative routes around a minefield But we do have capability to understand the ocean environment of which you would emplace a mine. So we have capability to do such things as required. And so understanding the oceanography that is conducive to mines, I imagine, could help predict where they might be in the first place. That is correct, whether it's just the ocean current, acoustic environment that you're operating in, but also just the water depth itself. Certain mines are only able to be employed in certain regions of the ocean. So knowing that information will also help limit or improve our understanding and tactical advantage to support the warfighter. We're speaking with Commander Matthew Watts of the Naval Oceanography Mine Warfare Center. And how prevalent is this in the world right now? I mean, is the Navy actively finding and trying to neutralize other nations' mines in public waters? Or give us an example of how this might happen in reality. 
if you're in a harbor or have a small region, even just a small fishing port, if you will, that's not as much of a concern for us, but just take that as an example. If an enemy was to lay mines across the opening or the port of debarkation of a certain region, that would limit your ability to leave. And usually, really, it doesn't take a whole lot. It's an inexpensive tool for an enemy force. A single mine in an area of the ocean, which we're not familiar with, does give commercial traffic as well as military units pause before they go and plow away through the ocean. It's definitely a tool that can be used by enemy forces, and we practice with ourselves internally to the Navy, but also with a lot of partner nations as we continue to prepare for potential operations forward. And are there still mines left over from very old conflicts, say World War II, or I don't know there was much mining in the Vietnam era and so on? or other wars, foreign wars that didn't involve the United States, do you still find old mines where people thought it was all over with? Yeah, there are areas that are still basically active mine areas. You mentioned the World War, definitely from World War II. A lot of mines were used back then and still prevalent in certain areas. And we're concerned of you know, any potential those breaking away and causing problems. And these are a danger then not just to naval ships, but to anything in the water. That is correct. And uh, you mentioned whether that it's, uh, whether it's on the surface or whether it's through the water column, so impacts to all types of vessels. Right. So the mine could be suspended below the surface and not just floating as we normally think of them. Exactly. So those mines can be contact mines where a vessel has to actually bump into the mine before it is triggered and explodes. But there's also influence mines which are continually, whether they're listening for an acoustic signal or if they're a pressure sensor, like a certain size vessel has to pass over the mine before it actuates. And how has naval practice and doctrine changed? You mentioned use of an underwater unmanned vehicle now to look at the waters and measure the waters and try to detect these things. You hear old-time stories about mine sweeping and chains between boats and this kind of thing. Is that all pretty much in the past now? We still have some legacy capability to do the mine sweeping and so on, but we're really more focused on mine hunting, which is a little bit more deliberate. So we prefer for mine hunting is to use unmanned underwater vehicles, if at all possible, to do surveys of the ocean bottom, and we collect that data, we analyze it, we look for man-made objects, but also really mine-like contacts. And if we find a mine-like contact through side scan sonar imagery, we are able to send another vehicle forward to reacquire, to identify that as a potential mine. And if we find out that it's a mine, we go ahead and have either a divers or a remote operated vehicle to place charge on that mine that we found and neutralize that at that point. And that's not up our alley, but we're the science behind getting to that last, that last point. And where in the world do you operate? There's a lot of waterfront <laughs> on the earth that the Navy could potentially come close to, or certainly the rest of the world is worried about it. Yeah, very true. So I mentioned that we're a global force. We leave from Stennis Space Center. But I also have four small components that are embedded with the local operational mine warfare commanders. Uh, those are aligned with the different fleets for our Navy, so 3rd Fleet in San Diego, 5th Fleet in Bahrain, as well as 6th Fleet. We have uh, Rota, Spain. And lastly, 7th Fleet, we have Sasebo, Japan. So I have personnel forward. Not only do they provide the meteorology and oceanography for day-to-day -day operations, but they also coordinate annual exercise participation for my command, as well as they're prepared for contingency operations and make sure that we're on scene as quick as we can get there. And just give us a sense of the size of your command. How many people work there? Is it mostly uniform? Do you have also civilian employees and contractors? Yeah, we're a modest command, really about 80 personnel, and that includes the small components that I have out forward. 
That includes officer and enlisted. And I also have a couple contractors that give us some great support for the Mark 18 Mod 1 vehicle, help us to not only operate the vehicle, but continue to advance our training and our tactics and procedures. And how often do you find mines that you might have been unaware of? And how often do they get blown up harmlessly? That's an interesting question. I'll say that for the most part, we're not bumping into many mines. More so, we're looking for mine-like shapes that have been placed during either operations or working with our other partner nations to prepare the force for action. Any evidence like North Korea does mine operations or Russia or countries like that? We sure uh, believe they do. Commander Matthew Watts is commanding officer of the Naval Oceanography Mine Warfare Center. Thanks so much for joining me. That was great to be here, and uh, I appreciate the time. We'll post this and all of the interviews in the series at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, 
I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Moms are amazing at tracking down hard to find items, library books, socks, you name it. But sometimes help is welcomed. Care.com makes it easy to find babysitters near you. Sitters with the experience and skills your family needs. 
like after-school pickup and homework help. You just post a job for qualified sitters to apply. And since all Care.com caregivers are background checked, you can feel confident about interviewing and hiring. To get the child care help you need, sign up now at Care.com. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's Sentence Clarity Rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts.